Hi, my name's Steve Wishart and I'm the IB World Schools Manager for Australasia at the International Baccalaureate. Welcome to our leadership series of podcasts. This series will explore some of the themes arising from the challenges faced by educators around the globe. In part one of this first episode on remote learning pros and cons, what do we maintain and what do we learn from, we will discuss the positives of remote learning for staff, students, parents and leaders. We are pleased to have Darlene Fisher, host of our leadership podcast series, Kevin House, Director of the Institute for Learning and Research at Dulwich College International, Nick Olchen, Deputy Head of Campus at United World College of Southeast Asia, and Frank Brasher, Head of School at Goldcrest International, as our panellists for this episode. My name is Kevin House. I work for Dulwich College International, representing 13 schools across Asia Pacific. My role is with the Institute of Learning and Research, which I head up with a team here based in Singapore, and really excited to be talking about some of the innovations, some of the challenges, and some of the lessons learned over the last seven or eight months. Hi, I'm Nick Olchin. I'm the United World College of Southeast Asia, also in Singapore. I've been working with the IB for many years on various things, mainly TOK. Also delighted to be here to talk about remote learning and what's best for students. Hi, I'm Sita Murthy, I'm Director of Education of Silver Oaks International Schools in India. We are in three different states, four schools, a community of 5,000 students in all our four schools. Hello, I'm Frank Bracha. I am the head of school of Goldcrest International in Mumbai, India, and I've been an IB educator since 1994. Hi, I'm Darlene Fisher and the moderator to these leadership series of podcasts. And I've been involved with the IB for more than 20 years now in various guises, first as a teacher and eventually head of school, more recently as a facilitator and workshop leader for the IB Leadership Suite. So what we're doing now is going to start with a big picture reflection, because as John Dewey has said, we don't learn by experience, we learn by reflecting on experience. And so what we're trying to do here is to reflect upon what has been learnt through this experience. And in this first half, we want to have a look at the positives, the things that we're learning, the big picture, the, the things we want to continue and take forward. So it'd be great for us to start by thinking, so what are the, some of the positives, the big picture things that have come out of the learning? What's happened with staff, with students, with parents, with leadership? So is there someone who'd like to leap in and start with some conversation? One thing that I think many people realised very early on when exams were cancelled was that we would be seeing behaviours from students which, you know, were very difficult to predict. How would they respond to a great deal of time that was going to be spent in other manners? And I think like speaking with colleagues around the world, I, I have the impression generally that students really flourished under a system whereby they had a lot more freedom. They had a lot more time to do work which could be driven by them and less driven by an external syllabus and which could be assessed in more imaginative ways than the high stakes testing regimes that we're used to not so much of IB student in the diploma years, but younger down, where they knew they were coming back to school and where they really had a, a, probably an extra term's worth of great learning that they flourished under. And I had one colleague who said, I never thought students could produce work of this quality. So I yeah. thought that was a huge inspiration for teachers to be more ambitious for students 
and for our parents to see also work that the kids could be doing. I thought that was a really exciting, good, positive outcome of this difficult situation. Thank you, Nick. Frank? I think the issue is that when this first started, it came very suddenly, at least it did for us in India. Within about one or two days, we realized we'd have to move the school into a digital environment. So for us, there was really a, almost a, a triple issue because not only did we have to switch into digital, we're in part of the city of Mumbai that does not in any way have a consistent network infrastructure or even electrical grid. We have power cuts in this part where my school is located where most of my students work. Plus, many of our staff members are challenged with technology, to be honest, and the use of this. So we did a very quick seminar for the staff. And what happened is really a staff just jumped into it. And I must be honest, it was impressive to me just to see how the staff sort of pulled themselves up and sort of got this thing moving. And one of the best takeaways from the process was there were staff members who you didn't realize had certain abilities. And, and there were certain staff members who you never thought of had any leadership capacity or any capacity for pedagogical change. And they were sort of leading this. And we also found that the online, uh, you know, using an online Zoom or we use, we use Google Meet actually allowed us to actually have more frequent meetings. So for us, in an administrative point of view, the early two or three week process of moving the school and changing the timetable to meet all this was facilitated by the fact that we could actually have meetings with the various stakeholders or groups of teachers at all different times. We also had to deal with things that we never thought we would have to consider because we had teachers who now were staying home all day and now had to attend with household duties or children duties because they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the support, they would not even work all day. Maybe there was a nanny or someone else at home or something, and then they had to actually deal with issues like this. And so we had to sort of arrange a timetable that would actually meet the needs of our teachers. Yes. In a sense, the concerns of teachers actually started to play an early role in this. I think what we're hearing so far that students are rising to the occasion, the teachers are rising to the occasion in ways that hadn't been expected and taking on the challenge of technology in so many ways. Kim? Yes. It made us realize, I think, how bound we were by kind of, if you like, hierarchies of mind. If you think about the four stakeholder groups, I think some of the things that we are noting that, that Nick and Frank have alluded to, the fact that it accelerated pedagogical reflection, it forced teachers to rethink instructional design, to think about how to utilize platform to embed a particular type of pedagogy. It made you very aware of the issues around how to use tools efficiently. I think it did definitely accelerate people's understanding, particularly in the older years where they are somewhat, as Nick said, handcuffed to summative credentialing. It made people realize how important collaboration is. And I think it also created more of an open-mindedness, really, in those areas of faculty with students. It allowed for more self-paced learning again, as Nick was saying. It increased and accelerated agency, which is something that we all wanted to see more of. And I think it created more flexible scheduling, more self-paced, more effective informative feedback regimes started to evolve as well. With parents, I think they started to understand that 21st century learning, as it were, is a very different environment than perhaps what they were used to and experienced themselves. Um, it made them hungry to understand the range of different strategies of teaching that they saw being used. And then finally, with leadership, I think it forced leaders to do things maybe they always wanted to do, but in that hierarchy, there's not enough devolved leadership. And I think this created more devolved leadership opportunities. 
and it made all of us much more aware of the parent experience really and how they are part of the learning community and how they need to be brought into the fold more actively in our strategies for school improvement. You brought up a number of themes that are coming out of love conversations and that idea of leadership having to share the roles and devolve and really extend the possibilities of decision-making because it can't all be so centralised as it has been in the past and also the role of parents in that. Sita, what are your thoughts on this? Whatever Nick and Kevin and Frank said, I had similar experiences, but I would also like to bring it from an institutional focus. As schools, what we understood is Unknowingly, we built so much hype around timelines, timetables, availability of people, resources, you know, all this hype has been demystified. And mm -hmm. these social constructs or the mental constructs a teacher has inside the mind or the school has inside one's mind, parents, students, everybody suddenly started seeing that construct breaking. They realized that learning can happen irrespective of all those things, that paraphernalia that we are normally used to. So that's one thing that we felt. You know, the, the first paradigm shift came when the exams were cancelled. Usually, we all build the tempo towards those exams. And when exams were cancelled, when, when you suddenly realize that learning happened, forget about exams, learning happened. From that stage, when we started the academic, like we follow the Indian calendar here for our PYP, MYP and the other grades. Only DPV followed the international calendar. So we started the classes in April. We gave a summer break in May, then June, July, August. Every month we started taking feedback survey from the parents. We would serve, send it and get it back from there. As an institution, I have seen my team, my teachers, we have about 350 teachers in all our schools. They journey from a pedagogy to an andragogy to a hutagogy. You know, all these words we used to hear only in theories, but I saw the practice now. I saw them talking about it, how much ever as a pedagogical leadership team in the school, we would talk to them. It would never get to their hearts because the noise of the routine hijacks everything. But now the noise of the routine is neutralized. The actuality of learning has come to the forefront. And now, what is student-centric learning is evident. What is learner agency is clearly evident. And what is heterogy, which is self-determined learning? You know, you have these students as captive audience. They're so bored of being at home that they are wanting more to learn. And that's exactly what everybody realized that there is an urge for learning in everybody. Only thing is, we have to find a way to tap that urge and exploit it and make the best of it. And that has been a greatest lesson to us. Thank you, Sita. That's a wonderful overview of the power that's happened and, and learning. I think, you know, teachers and students are clearly who are in our minds when we think about the situation a lot. But I think also a lot of times parents are being talked about as being impacted by this. Sometimes they're at home looking after their primary, middle, high school students. Sometimes they're just seeing a great deal more of what learning is going on or what learning looks like for their students. Are there themes that you're seeing in your schools or groups of schools that are coming across with differences you might make with relationships with parents in the future? We've started looking at a parent academy. I think even before the pandemic, we were reflecting on really, particularly in the private education space, 
there needs to be more of an expectation, as I said earlier, that parents are part of the learning community. And that needs to be actively part of the learning strategies within the school to bring them in. Obviously, we're not going to create curriculum and ask parents to come in and join in classroom activities necessarily, but we work with a group in the UK called Evidence-Based Education. We've been exploring some ideas around science of learning, doing some micro modules, making them kind of fun with some multi-choice, maybe doing digital badging around it, that parents could collate and collect a number of bits of learning around what is the science of learning with regard to how my child's learning in this new environment. And then also give them some tool hacks. So can we do some acceleration so that they feel more comfortable with the tools that their kids are having to use, whether it's Seesaw or Teams or Firefly or whatever it may be. So a range of hacks, some, some little micro modules that we push out through things like WeChat and China and, and other platforms elsewhere in APAC. Those things to just try and bring parents in more because obviously in a private space, this is also to some degree put us in a situation where it's the emperor's new clothes because the parents are going, hold on a minute, I'd pay rather high fees. And in some cases, as we all know, as leaders, they're saying, I'm not sure I'm getting value for money. Nick? The flip side of Kevin's point is that some parents are dissatisfied with remote learning. Others are just realizing how complex the art of teaching is yes. and that they sat down and they understand how to you know, solve an equation, but somehow they can't explain it to their child because they explained it and the child didn't get it. And they've just realized the nuance and the subtlety and the relationship piece. And I think actually, while there is definitely the financial and the structural tensions that we face, I think actually as a profession, my sense of it is that there's an enormous appreciation for the dedication that teachers have shown and for the skill and the art of running a Zoom meeting of 20 kids and yet managing to motivate them all. And I think some of the parents are, as they have said, you know, are just in awe of it. And many of them are in financial difficulties perhaps, but I have had the impression that they have a higher respect for schools and for teachers than they had at the start, even though the structural things that Kevin says are absolutely right. That's a big challenge for sure. So those two things I think exist in some tension with each other. I would say the same thing. There is a new respect, as Kevin already said, the science of learning has unfolded in front of parents now because they're direct witnesses, audiences to their children's learning. I know in one, some of my PYP classes, there is a parent who asks the teacher, oh, I didn't know you teach science and math in unit of inquiry. So the, the teacher said, we have been doing it for 12 years now. You've been a part of direct learning of your child today and that's how you understood it. So there's so many discoveries from the parent's side. And of course, the respect part and the science of learning, they understood far better. We have also planned many well-being activities and videos developed by the teachers within the school. And parents started participating in them. They liked this well-being activity because this is emotional well-being, social well-being, and things like that. So I think the greatest takeaway from this is parents' participation and partnership with the school now. The word partnership is an important one. I think we'll come back to it later. Frank. Yes, I would say that our parents have been very, very supportive. However, at the same time, the parents are now basically invited into the classes. And there have been a few instances where parents have actually contacted us with information that they would have heard you know, from the classes. But it's been really, very positive. And where there's been a criticism, we've been able to deflect it very easily. Or the parents have been very supportive. We've done a few workshops for parents, but I must be honest, few and few were turning up for these workshops. We did one last week and we had about 40% of the parents show up, which I think is actually a good sign. 
but I think our parents are just very happy that we're running the school and trying to deliver the program in a consistent way and providing for their children, providing some type of social interaction and some kind of meaningful instruction. So it is bringing the community together, of course. Thank you. I'd like us to move, maybe take a closer look now, a little bit more. We've looked at the big picture and the stakeholder groups within the school. Can we focus a little bit more specifically on the teaching and learning? What is it about the experience of going through, move to remote learning, and even going now for some areas to a blended model or face-to-face, -face, but with differences? What are we learning about teaching and learning that are things that we want to take forward into the future? I'd identify two things which I think are sort of mutual opposites and sadly both of which are true, which makes it very difficult. You know, on the one hand, I think many of us have seen that some of the systems in which we're embedded are perhaps slightly out of date. The mass testing industry is deeply problematic. And I think we're aware of the sort of the timetable issue that Sita mentioned and just the way that we can be driven by mental models, which are really about organizations more than about learning. And that pushes us toward reinventing and recreation. At the same time, I think we've also learned that schools are enormously social places, that, you know, the old wisdom that it's the relationship that matters first, yes. that face-to-face -face time is unsurpassed, that routines and structures are also valuable for students, and that constant change and uncertainty is damaging. And that pushes us toward getting back to normal, if you want, in that sense. And I think there's an element of truth to that as well. So at the moment, our school's up and running now, you know, under some quite severe restrictions. But the palpable relief of people to be back together and doing that collaborative, rich, face-to-face, -face, even if socially distant, learning is immense. And for me, I'm struggling with matching that with the fact that I know that there are still some things wrong with it. And I don't think it's a case of almost there's a happy middle ground. It's kind of almost one or the other. I'm not sure there's a sort of nice, tidy mix of the two, like we always look for, the compromise. I wonder whether actually it's kind of, you know, go back to where we were or make a bold, decisive change and that perhaps there is no middle ground. That's how I'm seeing teaching and learning at the minute. I'm finding it quite uncomfortable, to be honest. I can appreciate that. I think a lot of the comments that are coming out are things about we didn't realise what we appreciated or what we can now appreciate so much more because of we had lost it through this experience, you know, that face-to-face -face contact and the importance of well-being and relationships is one of the big things that comes through as a hugely important and moving up the list of priorities for leaders is to make sure that that's going well. I understand entirely that, that move to appreciate the face-to-face -face as well. What are some of the other thoughts about mm. it? Kevin? I think it was something that I think many educators already knew in their gut, but it gave us a real clearer understanding of it's pedagogy, not technology, as Bill Cloak would say. The relational piece, obviously with children in the earlier years, the notion that you could replace much of the rich learning that experienced in early years with some kind of digitization is a fool's errand. It's obviously with the older children who got more autonomy and a sense of more agency. I think one of the things I realized, and it's probably me talking more personally as a parent, when we, my wife worked in one school and was doing her teaching here, I was working from home. And the kids were both doing their home learning at their school. And it was kind of a, almost a digital epistemology I became aware of in that kids themselves, particularly iPhone generation kids, they move in a very seamless way in terms of almost inhabiting in a performative sense a range of ontologies. And they can be really authentic 
in the environment we're in now. Whereas I think for our generation, we still struggle to move between the physical and the non and the virtual space. Kids does it seamlessly across multiple platforms. And that notion that I've got to get in a room to create the human connection before I can do something, it's just not there for them. And we really don't know how to embrace that yet. Very interesting comment. I think is highlighting the, the fact that teachers have been pushed to take on technology and move into that world so much more than they were before. But the students are already there in so many ways and trying to bring the best of that out to enable the teachers who are perhaps less involved in it to take the best of learning forward into the future is going to be an interesting challenge and, and helping the students, enabling the students to use the best of their epistemology, as you call it, and really interesting perspective. Kevin, can I follow up there? Just uh, That's a really interesting comment you made, and I know exactly what you mean, and I see the same in my children, and they're doing it on multiple platforms at the same time quite frequently. And I take your point about them being in different spaces. I'm interested to know what you think about them learning in different spaces because I've seen genuine, authentic engagement online between my kids. I haven't seen it when they're struggling with a new idea or when they're trying to learn so much. I've seen it when they're playing games or just socializing and they've got an ease that I envy. But I'm interested if you've seen it around specific learning because I haven't seen that honestly so much. What do you think? I guess for me, it's more where they want to reinforce an area or skill. It's the way in which they have an ease of using real basic research skills to pull content from various environments. So if a teacher maybe delivers a certain, I don't know, some aspect of, let's say, algebraic mathematics, and they don't quite get it in the way that it's being unpacked or the modeling that's being provided by the teacher, they seem quite comfortable to go off into the cloud and pull on various other presentations of the same sort of content until they find an approach that seems to resonate with them all. Again, it's not a silver bullet by no means. And I think the relational, a deep emotional attachment to a particular teacher and the passion of that particular teacher has an enormous impact on learning and that will never disappear. But I think it's the idea that they can and will pull content from different areas, particularly in some of the more, let's say, mechanical skill areas, that they don't really feel, why should I be in a class laboring with a group of friends where I could be doing more authentic collaborative learning? over something that I could literally just pull and, and watch a YouTube. So I think they're just a bit more aware of how they can pull different things from different areas. And maybe our generation is not quite caught up with that. Thank you. Just a last chance to talk quickly about something that might have come up through teaching and learning. Cesar and Frank. There are two things I can mention. One is that our grade six, seven, and eight students specifically adapted to this change and to some extent even thrived in the change. They, they enjoyed a more project-based instruction and they enjoyed the camaraderie of speaking together in meetings. And the meetings that I had with them were the most meaningful I actually had with these students. Second was in teaching and learning, specifically with the older students, it did cause teachers to reevaluate their concepts of assessment. Yes. And it did force teachers to move more towards skill-based instruction. And it did make teachers have to resort to more student-centered learning in which, you know, the students were really doing a great bit of it on their own. And the instructions were really concentrated, you know, as opposed to a teaching each and everything scenario, which unfortunately was very rampant in my school before that. So they were our two biggest takeaways, which were, I think, improvements for teaching and learning. Absolutely. And, and clearly going to be a focus for ongoing. So Dali and I would talk about the approaches to learning. So this package of ATLs 
you know, they're so omnipresent in PYP and MYP and to a large extent in DP too. We have become adventurous, courageous completely. We parked aside the prescribed topics for that age level, completely put them in the backseat, brought in from biomimicry to dark matter, to dark energy, to everything. But what we made important was the approaches to learning. So we created websites, entire month of July, we called it Project July. And we constantly reminded the students that this is about your critical thinking, this is about your reflection. And how did we manage the social skills? We created breakout sessions every day and gave the Socratic dialogues as a theme to it, engaging in what is dark matter, what is dark energy, and why should we vote? Because we had student government elections at that time. So while teacher is one emotional aspect to associate with the classroom, the learning, the content, which excites them. You know, I was reading Ken Robinson, you know, in one of his books, he defines the difference between learning, education, and school. And children are so ready to learn that sometimes the educational framework may hamper learning. So we experimented only approaches to learning. And I think it has been a great takeaway for teachers. Mm. It's been a paradigm shift because all said and done, how much ever IB training or school training we give, that Asian context or that cultural context of teacher is the center of the classroom, has been suddenly demystified and they realize that through ATLs, a large amount of learning can happen. So for us, that has been a great takeaway. You know, that's a fabulous way to finish this first podcast, I think, was talking about the huge change that's happening in a, the awareness that all of you have spoken about, about the, the awareness of and the, the rethinking of what's really important about learning and how to do it differently. So thank you so much for your ideas with those big picture thinking about what are the challenges, what are the good things that we're taking away from this experience, both in the community as a whole, but also in the very focused attention to teaching and learning. Thank you to our panelists for sharing your experiences with remote learning and what you believe can be taken forward into the future. Subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to check out more episodes of IB Voices on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this episode as we delve deeper into remote learning and its implications on the school community.